then I will start to do the somewhat more academic process of thumbing through some of the scholarly literature, the major and the best commentaries on the passage. And that process for me, it usually starts by going back to my seminary times. And I look for pertinent background information. What did my professor suggest that I read whenever I get to Zephaniah? So I open up my big file of seminary notes, and I start looking through the different courses. Not a mention of Zephaniah in any of my systematics classes. Nothing in my homiletics classes. But I finally came to a course I took on the minor prophets. And I start thumbing through my notes. 20 pages of notes on Jonah and Micah. 15 pages on Aon. 20 pages on Habakkuk. 15 pages on Haggai. Wait. Micah. Aon. Habakkuk. Then comes Zephaniah. Oh no. Not a single note. So here I stand. 34 years old. And I don't recall ever hearing a single sermon from the book of Zephaniah. Nor was the book mentioned a single time in an entire seminary degree. And that's a shame. Because this is a beautiful little book. It's an absolute tour de force. And it's been a great blessing for me to pour over this diminutive but often neglected piece of God's special revelation. So, I look forward to looking at Zephaniah 3 with you today. We are going to do so under three headings. Prophecy, in verses 1 through 8. Purification, in verses 9 through 13. And purpose, in verses 14 through 20. So, prophecy, purification, and purpose. So, first, prophecy. Zephaniah, the historical man, the prophet, he had a tough job to do. The job of the prophets in general in the Old Testament was a thankless and exceedingly difficult job. One needs to look at the history of Israel and you look at their prophets and you realize almost all of them had to be dragged into that job kicking and screaming. There were not people signing up to be prophets for Israel. Hosea's ministry was a massive burden on him. Jeremiah, he fought against his vocation right from the beginning. Remember, he says, Oh Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Don't choose me. And those words from Jeremiah, they echo back to Moses, who pushed back against the Lord's call to go into Egypt, saying, Not me, Lord. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. Find somebody else. Even the great Isaiah. So famous and cried out, Here I am, Lord, send me! Well, he only says that after he sees the terrifying majesty of the Lord of hosts fill the temple and has his tongue scorched and burned with a flaming coal. Then he cries out, terrified, Here I am, God, send me! After all, you had that experience that Isaiah's had, what else can you say? You're not going to run away and hide. The prophets... They just had to be, at many times, an extraordinarily beleaguered and absolutely depressed group of men. Think about what they actually had to do. Think about their job description. They had to go into their hometown, to their own people, to their friends and family members, and deliver just devastating news. 
Any of you that have had to deliver bad news, especially to those that you love, might have a sense for just how emotionally draining and psychologically destructive delivering bad news to those you love can be. Unfortunately, this last year has been a very difficult year, a trying year for my family, on multiple fronts, as it has been for many of you as well. But the worst of it for my family came this February, this last February, when my father-in-law, a young, vibrant, active, and completely fit man as far as we knew, unexpectedly and suddenly died. It was a Thursday morning, I remember it well. I had just dropped my four-year-old son Judah off at his school. His grandfather, Pop-Pop as he called him, was his best friend in the whole world. I then, on my way to work, get a phone call from my mother-in-law, and she tells me, she's shaking, obviously, not doing well, she's just in dad's dead. That is it. And I needed to drive to my pregnant wife's school, she's a biology teacher, and bring to her the news that her father had out of nowhere died. I remember walking through, uh, through the doors of the school and she knew something was wrong right away because she's not expecting me to see that. I'm supposed to be at work. She's thinking, one of your grandparents probably died. Bad enough. But I had to bring her the news that she'd never see her father again and he'd never meet his unborn grandchild who now bears his name. Now bringing that type of news to someone you love, it's the absolute worst thing I've ever had to do. It's caused me tangible physiological problems. It still causes my heart to palpitate. It's caused me to lose sleep many nights when I think of delivering that devastating news to my wife. Now the news that the prophets delivered, the word from God, was sent to Israel specifically. Because God graciously chose them. They were his favorite nation. They were elect among all the peoples of the earth. But their election, as is yours and as is mine, is an election to suffer. An election, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1:2, to be holy and blameless. You are elect to be holy and blameless. And to become holy have to undergo the flames of purification. That's often a very painful process. As God so famously instructed the prophet Amos to say to Israel, he said, you alone have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Sounds pretty good to be alone. You alone have I chosen of all the families of the earth. But Amos doesn't stop there. He says, you alone have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. One here thinks of the great line from the Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevia, a Russian Jew, after receiving bad news, and he keeps getting more and more bad news, he cries out and prays to God. He says, I know, I know we are your chosen people. But once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? So Zephaniah stands in this long line of prophets, men who are often ostracized and vilified 
for bringing such bad news against his own nation, against their own people. No, they weren't patriotic enough. They were so pessimistic, these prophets. And true patriots, they hated these men. Just look at the last prophet, John the Baptist, who was beheaded by the government. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet of all prophets, who was crucified for sedition, crimes against the government. But being a prophet was certainly not an easy job. Zephaniah used to get a feel for him. He was born during the oppressive and tyrannical reign of King Manasseh. And he ministered to Judah during the early reign of the good King Josiah. Zephaniah's preaching, some speculate, may have even spurred the good King Josiah onto his famous Reformation program. Zephaniah and Jeremiah, just to give them a little more context, their contemporaries beginning their ministries about the same time. Roughly 620 BC. So in our text today, we find ourselves in this era, 100 years after Assyria has just destroyed, decimated the northern kingdom of Israel. And we are 30 or 40 years before the imminent Babylonian captivity. So sandwiched between Israel destroyed by Assyria and Babylon is on the horizon. It is into this nexus that Zephaniah prophesies to Judah, who is at this point in a Syrian satellite state. And the difficult message he has to bring to the people of Judah is that the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is coming to Judah and Jerusalem. A calamitous day of reckoning is absolutely imminent. Look, if you would, in your bulletin there at the text. Look at the first two verses of our text. They read, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Judah, Jerusalem, the special city of God, the city that was elected to holiness, has been anything but. She's rebellious. She has defiled herself with wickedness and idolatry. She's chased after false gods. Verse 2 tells us that she accepts no correction. Think about that. Think about the time period that we're talking about and then telling Judah and Jerusalem that you accept no correction. I mean, she just saw Israel, the northern kingdom, Decimated by the Assyrians. You think that might spur her on to holiness, to repentance, to beg God for mercy. Please don't let what happened to them happen to us. But no, she, like us, is thick-headed and ever inclined and prone to wander, and prone to the God we love. You see, for us, and for Judah, for Jerusalem, no amount of God's love seems to be enough to keep us from wandering from his presence. It's not as if we can say, if only we had one more sign, God. If we just had one more act of love from above. If only I really knew you loved me. Now that's not the case, is it? Look at verse 5 of our text. 
It says the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Every morning God shows forth his justice. He's steadfast. He's strong. He's dependable. And yet in spite of that, the text tells us that the leaders of Jerusalem are like roaring lions. They are fickle and absolutely treacherous. They profane what is holy. So Zephaniah shows up, and he is sent to prophesy their destruction. He delivers the news that a great day of judgment is coming. Now for Zephaniah, this great day was an imminent historical expectation. The Babylonians are coming. The Babylonian conquest is at hand. It is certain. But this historical act of divine intrusion, it foreshadows an eschatological, that is final, judgment, where sin would be abolished from the entire earth. So once again, this is important to get. Zephaniah's message is immediate. Babylon's coming. As well as eschatological, dealing with culminating, final, last things. And we know this because of the way that Zephaniah's ministry starts. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, reads like this. Zephaniah 1, 2 through 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Think about the language he uses there. Man and beast and birds and fish. These things highlight the totality of the things in the created order. And the God of creation is at this point the God of destruction due to mankind's unrelenting sin. What we see here at the beginning of Zephaniah's ministry, Zephaniah 1, is we see a prophetic reverse creation. Right in creation, what do we see? We see this overflowing of God's love that spills out in creating and creating in grand abundance. Right? He creates birds and fish. He creates beasts. And finally, the grand culmination of creation creates man. But if the scroll of God's love sort of expanded out in creation, here we see creation condensing and collapsing back in on itself under the weight of its own gravitational corruption. Man eliminated. Beast eliminated. Fish and birds eliminated. Right? The scroll of the cosmos is being rolled back up. Zephaniah is bringing a heavy this imminent day of the Lord, he says, man is completely, utterly, and absolutely abandoned by everything, every typical structure which they would hold on to for security. Everything that you normally cling to to make you feel safe and secure, those things are going to be destroyed. He tells us in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he says, in the day of the Lord, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. 
For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And I is telling you that your 401k, your 403b, your diversified portfolio is rendered less than worthless in the face of his cosmic reckoning. And you, Judah, you, Jerusalem, you stand in a special seat of judgment. You are in my crosshairs. For you specifically have seen what is coming. Right, look at verse 6 and 7 of our text. God says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. You see, with special knowledge comes increased obligations. Special knowledge comes increased obligations. How much more so then for you and I, as the book of Hebrews stresses? How much more so for us? that stand on the other side of the cross and the other side of the resurrection and the other side of the apostolic witness. Verse 7 of our text can and does speak directly to the 21st century church. Verse 7 says, Surely you will fear me. You will accept my correction. You will cling to the cross, won't you? So that you can stand in the imminent day of the Lord, the day of the Lord that is at hand, in Zephaniah's day, the people of Jerusalem had no excuse whatsoever, especially because they had these words from God through the prophets. Right? The prophets were talking directly to them. They had no excuse. But we have the word made flesh. And it's important to get this. Jesus is not just the word of the Father made flesh, although he is certainly that. Jesus is the enfleshed word of the prophets. What they prophesied about, we have seen. We have apostolic witness to the word enfleshed. So the stakes for you and I are raised. And with all of the chips sort of pushed to the middle of the table, we now stand in the doorway of the day of judgment. And who can stand in that great day? The day in which verse 8 of our text says, the Lord is going to gather nations. Why? He's going to gather nations and assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them his indignation, all his burning anger. And in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That brings us to our second point. Purification. Purification in verses 9 through 13. So, who can stand in the day of the Lord? Well, only the pure. But the nations, they've been defiled. Judah, God's elect nation, is wicked. So will not the whole earth be burnt up? Will not everything be consumed? No. Because God has promised to preserve a remnant of pure people who can stand in that great day. Look at verse 9 of our text. Verse 9 reads, I will change the speech of the peoples 
to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the Lord. Notice here that to stand in the great day of judgment, the people do not do so on their own accord. They do not do so on their own merit. It is God who initiates the change. God changes their speech to a pure speech. They stand only because God graciously changes their speech for them. I will change the speech. The people don't change their own speech. God says, I have to do it. I'll change their speech for them. And notice here, verse 9, that pure speech, what does pure speech involve? It involves invocation of the name of God. The text reads, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Why? That all of them may call upon the Lord. So pure speech involves prayer. But the prayers of the nations were not sufficient. They were not pure. Because prayer flows from faith. So God cannot be invoked by us until he draws us to himself. God cannot be invoked by us until he first draws us to himself. He draws us and gives us faith that we might pray. This is always the pattern. The pattern that repeats itself over and over again throughout Scripture. God calls, we respond. God breathes life into the dirt, and the dirt answers back. So prayer, true prayer, is always preceded by the inworking of the Spirit, by regeneration. God's name cannot be invoked unless our lips are pure. And only with pure lips can we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead so that we might be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. And our hearts and our lips are not pure. So they must be graciously purified by the blood of Christ. Now I want us to take careful note of what this remnant, what this remaining people who will be left standing in the day of the Lord, what they look like. Verse 12 tells us, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. So it's not the best, not the strongest not the self-reliant that are left standing, but the humble and the lowly. After all, the great prophet once told us that it is the meek that will inherit the earth. The humble, they are those who have already abandoned themselves to God alone in this present life. They lean not on their own understanding or their own prowess. So as we look and dive in look a little bit uh, closer at this description of those who will be left standing in the day of judgment in verses 9 through 13, we will see that those left standing are those whose speech is pure, verse 9. Those who are humble and lowly, verse 12. Those who do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, verse 13. And they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Praise, lie down, and none shall make them afraid. One can't help but think of Psalm 23 then. 
the good shepherd himself. He helps his sheep to lie down in green pastures where they need not fear the valley of the shadow of death. Now, if you look at this description of those who are left standing in the last day, it should become very clear that it is the good shepherd himself alone who meets that description. It is Christ alone who acted with perfect, personal, and exact obedience. It is Christ alone whose speech is pure, for he is the very word of the Father, the fount of all that is pure. Christ alone was humble and lowly, truly humble and lowly. As he who is in the very nature of God, the eternal Son, humbled himself and made himself love. He was the one who, though led like a sheep to the slaughter, did no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Christ alone is the one who can stand in that day, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And the heart of the gospel is that we, by the grace of God, are spiritually united to Christ. We stand in Him in that great day. Our impure speech is gathered up, purified, in and through Him. And our false, our frail, our faulty humility is covered in His indescribable outpouring of humility. Christ humility, being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, made to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous injustice, and to die the cursed and humiliating death on the cross. Calvin says in this passage, in this verse, Christ is exercising his church into humility under the weight of the cross. Christ is exercising his church into humility under the weight of the cross. We then, the elect, the church, those graciously chosen to stand that day, are to pick up our cross and follow in the humility of Christ. He has given us his spirit to sanctify us into humility, to bring us low in regards to the standing of the world. Vegas, as Paul says, the scum of the earth. Because to carry a cross is humiliating. It's pure foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that brings us to our final point. Our final point, purpose. Purpose in verses 14 through 20. So judgment is imminent. Both for Judah, Jerusalem, us. But God has promised to purify this remnant. But to what end? For what purpose does he do this? Well, informed folks, you understand that he does this for his own glory, for his own enjoyment, that his name might be magnified. We see in our text, starting in verse 14, that the remnant, those who have been purified, are told to rejoice. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleaned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again hear evil. Zephaniah 
gives us a glorious portrait. Not only of a reestablished Jerusalem, rejoicing and celebrating after their Babylonian purification has ended, but of God's elect, the saints, you and I, finally and permanently ushered into the heavenly Jerusalem, into his midst, before the face of our Lord. The remnant, the elect, are told to rejoice because, look at verse 17, rejoice, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah's image of restored order, of Judah restored after captivity, and us, the people of God glorified in heaven, is one of God being in our midst and exulting, singing, and rejoicing over you, his people. It's not just you singing God's praises. Here we have an image of God singing your praises. One pastor writes of this saying, Consider the magnitude of our deliverance and salvation. We are delivered, saved, purified, cleansed, put back together, sanctified, justified, made holy, grown into maturity to such an extent that God himself bursts into song at the sight of us. That's a glorious scene. God rejoices in himself, in his own works, in his own power in accomplishing salvation. And we, right now, through the person of Jesus Christ, we already have a foretaste of this glorious celebration of God in our midst. For Jesus, who is he? He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in our midst. God who rejoices over us. A God who sings over you. Our New Testament lessons today, Hebrews chapter 2, mentions this exact thing. Hebrews chapter 2, speaking of Christ, says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, one source. That is why he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Christ, the great prophet, brings us his word. Christ, the great priest, purifies us so that we can stand in that great day. And Christ, our king, sings and rejoices over us. So the prophets had a tough job. And they had to deliver many, many tough words. But the final words from Zephaniah and the final words from all the prophets are eventually rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord because he has first rejoiced over you. People of God, be filled with joy in the midst of your exile. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of unspeakable death and loss, because your eternal joy is secure, and you have a God who rejoices over you now, and He will forevermore. Amen.